Welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, the show for business owners looking to acquire, scale, or exit a business. Before we get on with today's program, we just wanted to let you know that the Buy, Grow, Sell team have been working really hard to come up with more resources that add more value to your journey. This includes a range of webinars, tools, and other events, including an online summit where we get some of the industry's leading experts to come and share their insights. If you'd like to know more, go to buygrowsell.com forward slash events. Enjoy the show. You know, I think we've all become quite accustomed with the idea that technology is changing everything. And this is never more prevalent than what we're seeing in business. However, there is one phase of the business cycle that I think has probably to date been lagging a little bit, and that is how we're using technology and artificial intelligence and things like this to improve the actual sales process. Now, don't get me wrong, there's marketing automations that can push people through a funnel and humans don't have to touch it. But in the real world, there are lots of businesses out there who still rely on doing meetings or picking up the phone and talking to customers to present a solution and sell something. Now, back in the day when I was a young man, you learned to do that by going to meetings with other people and having to sit there and listen and hope that the, your mentor picked up on certain things and gave you a couple of tips, and pretty much it was trial and error. Well, those days are starting to change. My next guest, Shruti Kapoor, got together with a couple of her friends to come up with a very unique solution. Her piece of tech and her company has developed the ability to track and measure sales calls and in live, in situ, give feedback to salespeople to tell them whether they're talking too much or whether they should be taking cues from the conversation in other ways, and ultimately give real feedback on individual performance to help salespeople improve. This is an amazing business. Shruti talks about how they developed it, how they got capital, how they ultimately ended up going on to sell. She's an amazing person, massively intellectually smart and, and brilliantly talented. I'm sure you're going to enjoy this episode as much as I did. This is Shruti Kapoor. So I was, you know, working with a fintech startup. And at that point, I realized that there was a lot of disconnect between the information that we were getting from the field and how that was impacting or rather not impacting business strategy as it should. Um, and so that's kind of where the idea of a wingman was born. Uh, and uh, yeah, and so uh, I founded it in 2018, uh, along with two tech co-founders. Um, we were always uh, very, very bullish on the fact that the space was just ready for disruption. There was just so much happening, both from the perspective of how behaviors were changing around people being uh, willing to do many more uh, virtual meetings. Of course, all of that got tremendously accelerated with the pandemic. Uh, yeah. And secondly, from a tech perspective where we were noticing that, uh, you know, just transcription, uh, video conferencing, uh, all of that technology was becoming so much better. Um, so yeah, I think we were lucky to have found uh, that right mix. Yeah, cool. So so in a nutshell, what what does Wingman do? How, how would you explain it to the uninitiated? Yeah, so Wingman, um, you know, it records all of the sales conversations across emails, calls, video meetings, um, and then it uh, you know, does two things. One is in real time, it's using that information to give feedback to the salesperson. So it could tell the, uh, the salesperson like, hey, you've been talking nonstop for the last three minutes. Do you want to pause, take a break, ask a question? 
Um, it could also give them information. And then the second part of it is because now it has all of this information, uh, it transcribes it, it makes all of those calls searchable, which in itself has tremendous value. But then when you start aggregating that up uh, in terms of workflows and, uh, you know, it can help with coaching salespeople, it can also help with much better pipeline reviews and inspection. Uh, because, you know, you know, this deal might be at risk because they've been talking a lot about competitors and about, you know, pricing negotiations. So things like that. And so then aggregating all of those signals in terms of actually telling what type of things are early indicators of deals that might be at risk or, uh, you know, general uh, coaching principles that might be useful. Because sometimes people just believe that, oh, I need to change 35 different things to become a better seller. And then if you start with a list of 35, you're probably not going to get anywhere. So just helping people focus on what are the most impactful um, areas. Oh, wow. I, I, I remember um, I've run sales teams in my life. And uh, at one point, I ran a sales team of about 30 people. And my goodness, to have had this back in the day, I think it would have been an absolute game changer for me. And obviously, game changer still today, but I just, <laughs> I spend less time managing salespeople than I used to. And, you know, it's, I, I guess one of the things that always stands out as, as a person who's been in sales a lot is, you know, you line up, a, you know, 10 salespeople in your team, and they could be radically different in terms of their performance. And it's always hard to sort of understand why are these one or two people really, really outstanding performers versus the middle of the road and, and I guess, you know, the bottom, the bottom quadrant. You know, what are those differentiators? And, and as you said, like, what are the one or two things you could tweak as opposed to the 30 things that you picked up on that probably need coaching? <laughs> I can exactly. see huge, huge value. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's one thing that everybody that we speak to tells us, right? Like, you know, the difference between your top performer and your bottom performer in terms of the revenue that they're bringing is typically four to five X. So, you know, it's it's not even a hard argument for us to make in terms of what is the value that the platform brings, because every sales leader, uh, you know, knows what that difference looks like and therefore what the value of good coaching and feedback can be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um. I noticed um, you guys obviously deal with some pretty large, you know, well-known brands out there. But is this also how accessible is this wingman and this kind of service to smaller companies? Does it, you know, what what is the smaller end of your client base? Yeah, so we work with companies with as few as maybe like five salespeople, and uh, what what we see is that the value that people get at different stages of their maturity is different, right? So I think. Early on, uh, and even for companies that are maybe still kind of trying to figure out their right product market fit, it is super important uh, to have the voice of the field going back to product, right? And it's, it's it's just so painful to tell the customer that, hey, can you do another call with my product person to give the same feedback? Because it adds zero value to the customer. And you know then you're trying to coordinate these meetings. It's also adding zero value to your salesperson. But this way, you kind of have all of that repository. Uh, so that is one reason uh, why even early stage companies are pretty excited about using something like this. The second is, you know, as your product features are evolving, very often you're like, okay, now we've launched this. Now, who do I go and talk to about it, right? Like, who are my right early adopters? Who asked for this, right? Like, even if you went and asked the salesperson, like, hey, you told me that you wanted this feature, who asked for it? They've probably forgotten because there's no CRM field to capture that. So, you know, just being able to do that is super helpful. And of course, as uh, people build up uh, their sales teams, 
uh, early on, they don't have a ton of uh, enablement resources, right? So this then serves as an automatic library where you can also create lists saying, hey, you know, listen to these three-minute snippets across these 10 calls, and this is, how, you know, what good pricing negotiation looks like, or, you know, things like that. So, so I think across the board, it adds different value. And then now, of course, as part of the larger platform, for larger companies, it brings in a lot more predictability around how do you react in revenue critical moments. And that could be anything, right? Like that could be a deal inspection meeting or that could be a live call with a customer. Yeah, cool. Yeah, what an amazing platform. What a what a brilliant idea. So so coming back to your side, I guess, of the story, I mean, it, it, technically I get it. and No wonder you saw the opportunity. When you started, did you start? Were you on your own? Did you have other founders? What What did those early days look like? So, literally, for me, the way it started was one: there was a desire to start up something, and then you know I went and found my two uh, brilliant co-founders, and so we then kind of knew within the three of us what you know what kind of skills we had, and therefore, of course, we were not going to build a restaurant business; we were going to build a tech business. Uh, and then I think we started hunting for the right idea. And of course, this idea was somewhat easier for us because I personally had felt the pain. I could kind of, you know, validate uh, where it would make make sense, who should we be speaking to. Um, so we kind of went through that process. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, for me, I think it was very important at that point to already have had the founding team as we were thinking about the idea, because then it makes it a little bit easier to say, you know, what do I want to build? Uh, bases, you know, what are the right, you know, founder market fit that I have for that problem? Yeah, that makes sense. And and just just for clarity for the listeners here, I mean, you, you that experience that you got that you were talking about in the fintech was was no kind of small unknown company. I mean, it was Pioneer, right? Yes, yes, that's so, right. <laughs> yeah, fairly well known to 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 a lot of people. So you know, no doubt, a great training ground to understand the problem that you're about to solve. So. Um, so that's pretty cool. So, so you decide to kick off. You 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 form this idea. Um, I know that you've got a, a background in sort of investment banking. So no, no doubt you've probably come from a well-paid environment, and now you're out doing startup land. How did you approach that? Did you you know? Did you all have to put in money? Did you you know? What do those early days look like on that in that, in that respect? Yeah, so, you know, definitely uh, being, you know, 10 plus years in the corporate life at that point and uh, having really well-paying jobs. And, you know, now as a startup founder, you often wonder how salaries get justified. But anyways, <laughs> um, so I think and that was the opportunity cost was pretty high for all three of us. Right. So my two co-founders had been working in Silicon Valley with Google for like a decade. Uh, one of them was, you know, in the founding members at the AI team at Uber. So it was, you know, the opportunity cost all around was pretty high. Um, I think one thing that we were comfortable, what that also meant was that we had some buffer uh, built into our own finances. So we we were okay to say that, you know, if, if I don't get salary for a year or two, I'm not going to, uh, you know, run into some hardship. Um, so I think that was that was the good part, right? But th what that also meant was that all of us came from a fairly like a, a background where we were like worried about not, uh, you know, basically because of the opportunity cost, like what happens if we fail? And uh, what what was great for us that worked out was the fact that uh, even as we were still uh, consolidating what the idea was going to be and finalizing those things. 
uh, we got some investor interest uh, just based on our backgrounds. And that made the call much easier in terms of saying, okay, you know, let's jump right in. Um, so we, you know, we were fortunate that we had a term sheet uh, even before we had kind of incorporated the company. <laughs> um, but, uh, but you know, as, as things eventually panned out, we only took the investment uh, maybe a year or a year and a half later. Um, but I think just having that gave us a lot of confidence that, you know, as we expanded the team, uh, we didn't have to worry so much. Yeah, yeah. Now, that's that's really interesting. Having um, an investment back, banking background myself, you know, we often talk about equity and debt funding and most startups, tech startups, people, they're not going to access debt funding, right? Like it's just too hard. So equity ends up being the avenue. But but equity is expensive. Like do, do you have a, I don't know, what's your view having been through this path and no doubt you've seen a lot of other startup founders out there and tech, tech founders, do you have a view on when is a good time to seek investment or how they should approach it? Or, you know, I mean, it's such a gray area on how people should approach it. Yeah. So uh, I think even when, and theoretically and practically, I understand that equity is expensive and, you know, especially the earlier in this life cycle of your company you are, the more expensive that equity is, right? Um, so, if, you know, I, I was in fact speaking to another founder uh, and we happened to know each other from college and bumped into uh, each other at the investor's office while, you know, we were kind of going through the motions and this person was a couple of years ahead of us in the journey. And he was like, you know, I would absolutely encourage you to not take any funding for now. Like, you know, you only need this amount of money to run this company and get it to this stage for the next one year. Just do that. You know, it's going to make your life so much easier and you'll come back and thank me. And of course, you know, while all of that advice made sense, um, you know, we we didn't uh, act on it. Right. And we went ahead and still we were like, OK, let's take the funding if we get it early on. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I would say that, yes, practically that advice makes a ton of sense, right? Like uh, if you can actually bankroll the company, get it to some stage of validation uh, for a year, for a year and a half, then, you know, what you're looking at in terms of valuation can be significantly different. And therefore, what that gets you, uh, right, is, is significantly different. And I think very often people don't realize how uh, if they dilute themselves too early, too much, uh, how that can impact not just what they might get out of the company when they're trying to sell the company, but what they might actually uh, run into is also that some very good investors might not want to come in in the later rounds because they feel that uh, the founders don't have enough skin in the game, right? Like very often you hear stories where after like three rounds of funding, the founders own like less than 15% of the company. And at that point, the investors begin to worry that if you only own this much, then, you know, it's not that different from you going and like taking up a job. If, you know, given just how painful and stressful and high risk it is to run a company. So I think that's kind of where the trade-off begins to then play. Um, so, so, so yeah, I mean, I think theoretical advice aside, uh, it's it's hard to sometimes implement it practically, but uh, but yeah, definitely something to be very, very wary of. Um, yeah. And I think the other thing that it really helps you think about is also how much funding you should raise. So one, you know, this advice we did not follow, but the, the second piece of advice we did follow, which was we said, you know, we don't need to raise like $3 million on day one. So you know, let's limit it to saying we will only raise one and a half million dollars or whatever. And then like that helps us in saying that, okay, we don't light up like selling 40% of the company on day one, right? Uh, so, yeah. 
Yeah, that's I think great advice, and and it is so hard I think for for founders and business owners out there to un, to to make a call on this. It's you know as, as one of my friends said to me, you know about about selling too much or too early is they said I'd much rather have a smaller percentage of something than a hundred percent of nothing. And you know if we don't get funding, this thing ends. And so we still believe so in in the mission and the, the where the company's going. So yeah, I mean it's a hard line to walk. I think for people and it's, you know, getting funding is not necessarily, you know, it's, it's, well, it's not that easy for everybody, right? Like, you know, you guys had a a good start. You had great reputations. There was people who understood your backgrounds and probably were willing to back you. But I think there's a lot of people out there. They've got to go. And was another friend of mine said, I'm always racing. I am always racing. I'm always on the hunt. It is a full-time job just for her. And it's, and it's hard. So yeah, I, I think, be wary of people with silver bullets who make it sound like the solution is so simple. It's um, <laughs> actually it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes is Bernard George Bernard Shaw who said, uh, "For every complex problem, there's a simple answer that's wrong." <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, so cool. Talk, talk to us about you know you've just started this company, you've gone through a round of funding, you you know no doubt it's pretty exciting times. You're all probably working harder than you've ever worked in your life, even though you didn't think that was possible prior to that. <laughs> um, what did the what did the growth cycle? Look? When did you get the product out as an MVP? How long did it take to start getting customers on board and get revenue coming in? And was there when, when was the point that maybe you even sort of start hitting break even? Yeah, so, uh, you know, we started the company in May 2018. And uh, by October, so I would say like five to six months, we had our first paying customer. And, you know, what we had done in those five months was we kind of spoke to a lot of different customers, uh, or potential customers, and we were like trying to constantly figure out what was, you know, that bare minimum thing that we needed to build in the first place. Um, and so so that was, uh, I, I would say that speed was maybe pretty good. Uh, right to get to a product and then get to a stage where somebody was willing to pay us something for that product. Um, and then uh, from there on, what we realized was that there was like, a, you know, you, you kind of have that rosy glow of uh, what you feel is like, hey, this is now going to be up and uh, to the right. Uh, and then you're like just running into all sorts of road bumps. Um, so I think the first thing that we realized was that, uh, you know, while they were so excited about the idea, they had, uh, you know, agreed to pay us and they paid us in that first week itself. Uh, what we realized was that after a month, they were not using the product uh, as much, right? And it was even getting hard for us. And, you know, this was a friendly customer. So what we wanted was a lot of active feedback in terms of, you know, what is working, what is not working, what should we be building next? But beyond a point because they were not using the product, they didn't have a lot of feedback. And uh, so, so that was kind of a big red sign for us. Um, and then, you know, over uh, the next few months, we learned some of the hard lessons that we all hear about, but we often don't <laughs> fully internalize till we actually face them on our own. So one was, we realized that if that person is not your ICP and, you know, it's just somebody who's doing this because they're a friendly customer, um, you know, the feedback that you're going to get is is not going to be very relevant, right? Um, and so one thing was that we had to force ourselves to say, like really dig into saying, who is the customer that I actually want to build the product for? And then be very, very selective about it. And then try to actually only work with them closely and only use their feedback uh, in terms of deciding your product path. 
Um, I think that was a one big learning. The second big learning for us through those ups and downs was as we started speaking to companies uh, that we thought were our ICP, uh, right? We then realized that a lot of companies were like, oh, but we already heard about this other competitor of yours and, uh, you know, why should we work with you? And, you know, when we started the company, while we knew about that competitor, you know, those competitors were maybe a year, a year and a half um, ahead of us, uh, right? So they'd only started a year before. And so we, we didn't really think that that was going to be a big deal. But then when you realize that in the software space, um, you know, things spread so fast and your competition is always global, yeah. um, as are your customers. So uh, we then kind of went into saying, how do we um, use the fact that a lot of people that we are talking to have either heard about the competition or are using the competition, uh, right? So that meant one, understanding what were they getting out of the competition, uh, right? Like what parts of the product were actually useful for them and what was still the difference between the promised land versus what the co uh, competitor was delivering. Because again, the competitor was also very early and that's kind of very, very useful insights for us in terms of how we then decided to build the product in terms of saying, hey, you know, they're promising all this. This is why people are buying them, but they're not able to deliver on the promise. And so what could we be doing differently that helps deliver on the promise? So I think that was uh, that was a big part of uh, that learning curve. Um, and then we, you know, very quickly iterated on the product to add that set of features and thought process around what we thought uh, competition still wasn't delivering. Um, so, you know, from May uh, starting the company to in February, we had like a V2 of the product, which had like a bunch of other uh, features. In this case, it was, you know, the real-time feedback uh, to the salesperson so that you're not just waiting for somebody to do a postmortem. Um, and then from there, it was still a long journey in terms of saying, uh, you know, getting the non-friendly customers. Uh, and, uh, you know, being able to build out what you would consider like a sales process around it. You know, how do you consistently get those, uh, you know, non-friendly customers? Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. The cold audience, right? It's, um, it's, it's, if you can't tackle that, you're going to struggle. Um, really interesting. Okay. So you're on this path, you're generating customers and feedback. Is, is there a point? Like how far in were you when you realized, you know, we're really getting traction in the market. We're starting to get that growth where, you know, it's you go from being this rough band of outfits, you know, sort of to this smoother running machine, right? And I think anybody who's grown over a certain size knows there's a point there. Did, was it, did you have that point? Did you have a moment where you realized we're, we're, we're hitting home runs now? Yeah, I would say that was almost two years after we started, um, right? And so, you know, I talked about the early part of the journey. Uh, a year after we started, we actually got, uh, became part of the Y Combinator Accelerator in the US. And that kind of helped us with just, you know, having many more interactions with the right ICP that we wanted to sell to. Um, and then from there on, uh, what what we realized was, uh, you know, a few things just more from a go-to-market strategy uh, point of view, right? Um, what, what you try to do early on is you try to build something that is scalable from day one. But what you realize and what also YC advises companies is don't try to build something for scale on day one, all right? What you're trying to do is you're just trying to build something that gets you to the next stage and then the next stage and then the next stage. 
Um, and everybody, you know, when you're trying to look for your role models, you're looking at companies that are large and that have already reached the stage, and then you're trying to work backwards from it. But what you don't realize is that's completely not relevant to, you know, your starting point right now. Um, so I think that was that that was kind of what uh, a big breakthrough for us was was realizing that uh, you know the first thing that you need to do to be able to sell to anyone is to have some sort of a trust with them. Now in the early days, that trust could come from you know using your network or your network's network, and that's completely okay, uh, right? You don't have to start with doing Google Ads on day one to say I'm going to get a hundred customers. Yeah. Um, and then uh, what we became better at was scaling up that trust building. Uh, and so for us, that went uh, with respect to, you know, building a good social media presence uh, for myself as a founder, and then uh, also building a good presence with the ecosystem. In our case, it was basically sales leaders uh, by being present on content that they are hearing, right? So, you know, whether that's ebooks or podcasts and that really helped us in building a good brand, um, you know, at that level. And then that brand helped us in actually uh, begin to get some traffic and also begin to build trust with people that we've already reaching out to. Yeah, nice, nice. I mean, it's it's not rocket science. It's a well-worn path. But, geez, you've got to know how to bring together all these different elements, don't you, to, to keep the wheels turning. Um so 2018, fast forward a little bit here. Did, did you do any other raises along the way before the deal with Clary? No. So we actually eventually only did one fundraise, which uh, was in 2019, uh, you know, around the time of our Y Combinator demo day. Yeah. Okay, cool. Cool. Well, that's that's a fortunate thing. I mean, I you constantly hear of people doing seed and then rounds A, B, C, et cetera. But um so at what point did you start to think about doing more deals and, and you know, like the whole Clary deal? Uh, where was the thinking? Where did that start? How did it get going? Yeah, so funnily enough, um, you know, I think we were in maybe our third month as a company when we first got a call for somebody wanting to acquire us. And, <laughs> you know, that's... <laughs> We, of course, kind of just, uh, you know, talked about it, laughed it out and went on, uh, right? So I think as founders, because of our backgrounds, we fundamentally understood that, you know, there are many different types of acquisitions, uh, right? And what you get out of an acquisition depends on, you know, where you are in your journey. And of course, it can be big a big distraction to engage in those conversations early on, uh, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then along the way, we did keep getting uh, some interest, uh, right? And as we got that interest, what we began to also understand was, why would I talk to somebody or why would I not talk to somebody if they were interested in acquiring my company, right? Um, and a couple of simple criteria. One was, um, you know, what they're trying to build or what they're trying to do with the business. Does that actually excite what I'm trying to do with Wingman? Um, and the second was, uh, you know, how are they going to pay for the deal, right? And again, like very often people miss out the simple fact that if they don't have money in their bank account, they can't pay you money in, the, in your bank account. Um, so, so we were kind of clear about a couple of those things. And we understood that, you know, once you sell the company, you sell the company and, uh, you know, you're, you're better off uh, having control in how uh, and when you sell the company and in what format you get paid when you sell the company, uh, right? Uh, if you're getting paid in a currency that is not really meaningful to the rest of the world 
and you have no stake on influencing uh, the value of that currency, then you know you're probably uh, yeah, that's not something that you want to be doing if you have the choice, of course. Um, so I think those were kind of a few things that over a period of time uh, we were able to get comfortable with just among the founders because um, you know we had this drumbeat of people reaching out once in a while and saying they were interested in acquiring the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the third piece of advice that we got, which was very useful, uh, was that somebody, uh, you know, a YC founder partner told us that, um, you know, unless you're serious about it, don't try to get a number on the table. Because once there's a number on the table, there is a number on the table. And, you know, every time in the future, you're going to have that number in the back of your mind as you make decisions. Um, so I think that was that was also useful advice because one, getting to a number actually people don't realize takes work, uh, right? And it can feel very exciting to get to a number, but if you're not really serious about it, then it's just a big distraction. And it's also a distraction for the rest of your <laughs> journey as a startup. Um, so yeah, so I think those were some of the basic things. And then as, um, but I think along the way we knew, right, like what type of uh, buyers existed. And, yeah. you know, that was both uh, because of, you know, the background that I had, but also because as we got all these offers, we began to bucket it into saying, you know, these are the strategics, these could be the financial type of buyers. Among the strategics, you know, these are the different types of companies or spaces that have some sort of synergy with us and mm-hmm. you know for this space this is the synergy and therefore this is how they would view this or how they would value this so we kind of had a rough map of this and especially given how fundamental our space is we knew that the types of buyers from a strategic standpoint were going to be you know like at least seven eight different buckets um so yeah so i think uh, we were kind of uh, fortunate to have uh, some of that understanding yeah, that's very cool. Very cool. I think you, you spot on. And we talk a lot about strategic acquirers, financial acquirers. It is a little different in the tech space, I find, compared to your more traditional businesses that are perhaps even more established and doing, you know, um, yeah, more traditional sort of styles of work. But it's, um, yeah, it's still, I think the principles are still still very much relevant. Um, one of the questions I had, you know, before we kind of get into the process of selling I was just curious. I mean, you had three founders, of course, including yourself. And and one of the big issues I see out there is when there's more than just one founder or more than just a, hu- a husband and wife or two partners, um, you know, there are there's quite a, it can be quite a dynamic in the relationships. And sometimes people are uh, older or younger at different stages of life. They come from different places. They sometimes just want really different outcomes. Um, and, and that whole kind of personal element and how we all pull together around a unified goal can be quite a challenge for a lot of founders and business owners that I see. How, how did you find that? I mean, we, did you were there areas of discussion, you know, when you tar- start talking about exiting that you maybe weren't aligned or that you had to really work through as a, as a team of founders? Yeah, so I think uh, one thing that I probably didn't realize, and again, this was advice that I got from somebody when we were not even thinking about selling the company was that, you know, the decision to sell or not sell is not based on, you know, some magic number out there, right? It is at the end of the day, a very personal decision to the founders. And uh, therefore, it's very important to know why somebody is doing a startup and, you know, what is it that they are looking to get out of actually building that company. And to constantly keep testing that because that might evolve, right? Like 
uh, you know, anything could happen, right? Like my ambition might grow and I'll be like, you know, if I don't take this to IPO, I don't want to, you know, it's not worth it for me. Or somebody else might be like, you know, I'm too tired and, you know, I have these personal commitments and I, you know, I would love to be able to move on and do something else or, you know, just take a back seat. So I think uh, it it was, it is very important to know that all of those drivers are completely personal, uh, right? And there is no one perfect answer, right? So you also have to have the empathy to say that, you know, just because this is the right answer for me doesn't have to be the right answer for somebody else, um, right? Uh, we were kind of lucky in the sense that the three of us were at very similar stages in our life. We, we'd all graduated from college the same year, even though we didn't know each other before we started building the startup, uh, right? But but from a just from a family and personal perspective, we were kind of at the same stage uh, broadly. Um, what we did do, uh, you know, even before we started the company was we actually sat down and wrote down like a few questions uh, that we answered in parallel, uh, which, which were around saying, you know, why are we starting up? What does success look like? You know, if uh, if this thing is not working out, what what is the time that I'm willing to give myself? You know, how much money am I willing to invest out of my personal pocket into this? So just that was something that as a starting point, we were like setting base with. Um, but then, of course, you know, four years down the road when you're, uh, you know, the economic environment has changed, the company has changed, everybody's perspective also evolves. So I think it's important to appreciate that the answers that somebody wrote back then might not still be applicable. Um, so I think we did have that experience uh, of having those discussions on saying, you know, is this the right time? If we don't sell, then what happens? Um, you know, and and of course, creating a space where one person doesn't feel that they are being compelled to do something because, uh, you know, the other people are interested in uh, doing it. Um, so I think there was there was definitely a lot of intense discussions around uh, understanding, you know, uh, just being able to say, okay, you know, this is one path. What do the other paths look like, and what that might mean personally for each of us? Um, and then I think being open to understand that there are there could also be multiple different combinations. Um, eventually, we all are you know aligned on the same page, but I agree that it's a process and it's it's a very personal journey and process. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's 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 such an as you said, everything's so personal. It's such a unique journey. You bring three individuals who are quite unique together and on a different journey. That journey is so unique, and it's you know the problems and challenges you face, can timing and all these sort of things come into play. So I, I love what you said about you know even those needs and desires evolve, and it's I think being sort of inflexible around some of that stuff is where I see a lot of relationship breakdowns and. You know, it's it's sad because they started out so well and just sometimes they can't even pinpoint where things started to go wrong. Um, so I think having that kind of open mind, clearly why you guys have uh, been able to get where you where you are today. So so congrats on that. I think it's, you know, you've weaved some of the most difficult challenges being the human ones um, through this process. Um, speaking, speaking of humans, you know, I've heard you say a few times, you know, now that you know, you took some advice or you heard advice, you may not have taken it, but you got advice. How important is it, I guess, as not just as a founder, you know, in a startup, but just in business in general to have mentors, advisors, people around you? And and do, do you still have those type of mentors today? Yeah, so I think when I started the journey, I was uh, probably a lot more self-assured that, uh, you know, you've you've seen, done some stuff, and then, you know, you can kind of walk the path. 
Um, but I think over a period of time, what I realized was that, um, you know, if, if you don't seek out the right type of advice, then you are actually setting yourself up for uh, a lot of pain, right? That could be easily avoided, uh, right? So if somebody has already learned the lesson that, you know, what happens if you raise money before you have an idea, then <laughs> you might as well at least know uh, what that lesson was, uh, right? And so that, you know, you might not take that advice per se, but you might at least have that uh, background as you make your decisions. Um, so what I started doing was I, it's not that I have one or two mentors that are go-to for everything, but I think there are, um, what I've gotten much better at is finding the person that I want to reach out to, to get the advice for that particular context. And the second part of it is just knowing and understanding what was the context of them giving you that advice, right? Like, because sometimes we just take advice and not know what to do with it, uh, or we think that that is bad advice. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's not good or bad advice. It's, you know, whether that context is relevant or not relevant. And so just getting better at understanding context and, you know, deciding whether or not that's relevant. Um, so, so, yeah, I think that's my approach to getting advice. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, fast forward a little bit here, if we could. You know, so you talked about um, you know when you're selling and looking at strategic acquirers and everything else. So obviously, Clary was on that list of strategic acquirers. Um, what did the process look like? You know, from how did you make contact with them, and and what did the process look like after that? Yeah, so um, this was actually an inbound for us. Uh, right. So, uh, and again, at that point, we were not looking to actively sell the company. And it just happened that uh, within like a couple of weeks, we got interest from two, three very different looking players. And uh, we were like, mm, maybe there is something there. Maybe, you know, there's something happening in the space and maybe we should just dive into it a little bit. Um, so that is that is kind of how uh, the conversation started. And I think... Um, for us at that point, we were like, um, if if we have to be serious about this, we have to make sure that we are doing ourselves, um, you know, justice and not just going with the first person who comes along, right? So at that point, we were like, now is if if we are serious enough, then let's go and do the due diligence. Let's go and look at you know what the other strategics look like, and actually have those conversations before making our decision. Um, Clary, of course, ranked very, very high in terms of, you know, my first criteria, which was what do they want to do with the business and how does that align with what we were looking as our future path? And, you know, for us, uh, what we were increasingly realizing was that we wanted to add uh, value to the VP of sales or to the CRO. And the biggest things that they cared about were around having more predictability in their revenue uh, and that is exactly the space that Clary was playing in. And so we were like, okay, this is, you know, this is exactly my vision for what I would have wanted to build uh, over the next uh, three to five years. Um, so that was kind of a, a big check for us because that meant that we were at least excited by that joint vision and we knew exactly the value that uh, uh, together we could deliver to the customers. So, so that was a big, big uh, checkbox for us. And then, of course, as we uh, looked at all of the other uh, strategics, what was very interesting was that uh, we actually had a phenomenal success rate with having a first conversation with all of those companies within the first 10 days of us actually reaching out to them. Uh, right. So, we, you know, I, I made a list of maybe around 12 companies which met certain criteria. 
And then like 80% of them replied within like 24 hours and said like, yeah, I would love to have a conversation. And then, you know, we were able to set up time within the first week. Uh, what that did was it gave me confidence that, uh, you know, one is, you know, what your options look like, but two, uh, it also gave me confidence that, you know, our belief that maybe something uh, was happening in the space with respect to consolidation was true. And, you know, there were all of these players who were also interested in looking at this and which kind of increased our confidence in saying that maybe, you know, this is the right time for us to sell because, um, you know, if you try to sell the company two years later, maybe the environment would look very different. Um, so I think those were just things for us to validate um, from a founder perspective. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, if you have more interest, uh, right, it's always uh, the, the price is never based on, uh, <laughs> you know, a particular uh, number, right? It's always based on the supply and demand of things. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you, to, just to reiterate that point, you know, you made there, which I think is so important, is that the timing, right? You know, if you're in an environment where there's a lot of buyer activity and interest, you know, sometimes you may not feel like it's the best time internally to sell, but the market is telling you this is the time to sell. And and I think for any business owners that are listening to this right now, the market is so much more powerful than us individually in our company in our own internal space. You've got to, you know, we're all small boats on a very big ocean. So if the wave comes, you know, you either catch it or sometimes you miss and you've got to wait a long time for another wave to come. So, you know, be, being, I think, aware of at least that environmental situation and understanding if it's a good time to be having these discussions can be the difference between an amazing exit or, or somewhat mediocre exit. So. Um, yeah. Trudy, what, how long did it take? You started chatting to Clary, started chatting to all these different parties between these early discussions and, and you know, crunching a deal. What, what, what did that, how long did that take? Um, so I would say it was it was pretty fast uh, for us. Uh, and I know, uh, you know, these these experiences can be excruciating. I know people who've been in that process for like a year and, you know, it's, it, it hasn't happened. Um, for us, it was, you know, broadly a month uh, to get to a number, right? And that was also a month for us uh, to evaluate and speak to other, uh, you know, potential acquirers. Uh, and then from there, it was uh, two months of due diligence, um, yep. right? And uh, yeah, and, and, and you know, the two months of due diligence was what was on the term sheet. They were very, very respectful of that. Um, and, you know, the money was in the bank uh, pretty much in the 60 days. <laughs> a little round of applause. Well done. I mean, that's fantastic. It's, you know, I've certainly been involved in deals that have taken 12 months and longer even, and it's it's hard, it's tiring, everyone gets deal fatigue, it's frustrating, everyone just wants it done. Um, but I think I think there's a couple of elements I'm picking up here from your story, and that is, one was your actual readiness, even though you might not have been thinking about going to market and doing a transaction, your experiences in the past, even being in investment banking, but your experiences in the past, I think, by the sounds of it, put you in a state of at least mental preparedness. You understood the process. You understood what were the key factors to you if you were going to go down this path. It makes it a little bit, it's always going to be emotional, but there's less emotion probably in some of those early decisions. So you're ready to have real discussions. And I think when you combine your level of readiness with clearly the buyers you spoke to, 
I mean, these are all global players. I mean, we've sold software companies. The buyers who are large software aggregators have done this so many times that they just there is such a well worn path, and they 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 know what kills deals, and it's time, and it's being silly and negotiating too hard around the fringes. Except instead of focusing on value, right? So that's a fantastic outcome. I mean, congratulations. I think it's it's a it's an example for anybody listening to how you can really do this and do it right. So so well done. Yeah, and I I agree that I mean uh, there is definitely some level of preparedness that goes into it, and the second part of it is just having the right set of advisors uh, who can tell you what are the things that might trip this up, right? Like. What you don't realize is like, you know, do I start with just this list of 100 due diligence questions or are there things within this that are actually going to take me more time or, uh, you know, they're going to require me to create preparedness among my team or something else, right? So I think that uh, definitely is super important. And so, yeah, if you can speak to people or if you have formal advisors who can walk that path, it can be a game changer. Um, and I agree. I mean, I think sometimes people just bring their egos into the room and then uh, they realize that they want to negotiate everything and it's like either my way or the highway. And then uh, that that doesn't uh, work very well. And I think that applies to both parties. Uh, and then I think uh, the third part of it is not very different from doing a good enterprise sale, right? Like you need to understand what who the different actors are and what roles they are playing and how do you support them in their roles? Um, so I think all of that, uh, you know, just having a little bit of a sales perspective uh, to uh, an M&A uh, can also be very, very helpful. Um, and I think, uh, you know, for us, we were fortunate that um, there were things outside of both the companies uh, that that were kind of defining the timeline in the sense that already a PR that was planned for a certain date, and then that became the forcing function for everybody to get stuff done around it. <laughs> so either if there are events like that, or if you can create events like that, then you know that's uh, that's a good hack, uh, and that's what somebody told me, right? Like um, they they told me that they were going to they they went and so they were a seller on a large deal, and they went and told the buyer that listen, I have vacation planned for so and so date. And I'm going to go and propose to my girlfriend during this vacation. So if you want your deal done, get it done before this. Otherwise, I don't know what's going to happen. And, yeah. uh, you know, that became the forcing function. And so, you know, it, it, there might be a date or you can create a date and an event. And uh, hopefully that <laughs> that helps everybody bring only the right issues to the table when you're negotiating. Otherwise, you know, a 100-page document can be negotiated for at least 300 days. Yeah, oh, indeed, indeed. I love it. I love it. You know, yeah, you need you need a deadline on these things, and if you if you need to create a reason, good on you. I think that's that's very clever. Um, Trudy, I know we're cognizant of time here. I I do want to ask you um, one question that I, I love to ask all my guests is is what is their definition of success? Um, but before I put you on the spot and ask you to answer that. Um, are you okay if people want to reach out if they wanted to message you or anything like that? Is is that is that okay for them to do that? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, paying it forward is one of the things that I believe I've learned a lot from uh, you know through all of the advisors and the good and bad advice that I've received. So happy to share my good and bad advice with the people who might be in need of it. 
Um, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, so that's probably the best way to reach out to me. Uh, you can just search for Shruti Kapoor and Wingman or Clary, and uh, hopefully I'm the only one who shows up. Yeah, brilliant. Well, look, we'll put your LinkedIn profile into the into the show notes so people can access that. And um, as I say many, many times on this show, please, if you do reach out to Shruti and send her a LinkedIn message, um, please don't just send a random connection request, like send put a little message in there, maybe let her know that you heard her on the podcast so that she has some context. And, um, you know, we're all humans here, so let's um, let's be nice and normal and communicate properly. <laughs> um, very good, very good. So, Shruti, do you mind if I ask you, what, what, what is your definition of success? Um, that's a tough one. Um, but I would say that maybe it's, uh, you know, today what I feel is that it's reducing the gap between your expectation and your reality. Um, and, you know, using that to create happiness uh, for yourself um because i think the you know the expectation and the reality are both going to keep evolving uh, but if you want to have the opportunity to be successful in whatever uh, stage you are in then i think that's a good framework uh, to think about it yeah that's fabulous thank you so much for sharing that thank you so much for coming on the show i really appreciate your time and sharing your story um, we're going to put in some links there for Wingman and Clary. Um, I know I've been pouring over the website there because I've been blown away with what you guys are doing. It's um, it's a changing world, right? I think everybody's talking about everything from AI to you name it. So, you know, if you're running a business out there and you have a sales function and you want to know how to improve it, then do yourself a favor and go and start looking up Wingman. So, um, Shruti, thank you so much again for your time. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks, Simon. All right. And for those listening, thank you so much for joining us again on the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. Uh, we've really enjoyed having you and I hope you've enjoyed uh, hearing from Shruti as much as I've enjoyed chatting to her. I think there's been so many insights in this story and please join us again for the next episode. Thanks for listening. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Wherever you are on your business journey, it's worth understanding what is driving value into your business and what could be holding you back. For more information, speak to the team at Exit Advisory Group by going to exitadvisory.com.au or send an email to ask at exitadvisory.com.au. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.